Have you ever been in a place where maybe spirituality or the pursuit of spirituality or even the sense of something spiritual felt like it maybe didn't fit you? Or maybe you know somebody in this place where the terms or the conversation around spirituality get met with a bit of an angst or maybe resistance or a prove it to me type of a mindset, then this show is definitely for you. I get to sit with my dear friend, Casey Ariaga once again, and go into his book, Spirituality for People Who Hate Spirituality, and really unpack the need of our true nature, our human nature, our soul's nature, and why this word spirituality is part of the fabric of our being, and how to become friends with it, how to move into it and allow it to be something that enlightens us, grows us, and brings us to a new place in our life. I hope you enjoy this interview as much as I did. Hello, I'm Tina Marie St. Cyr, and welcome to Light Your Life, the podcast. I believe our dreams have energy, calling, and purpose, and that when we move in their direction, our lives become even more joyful, fulfilled, and effortless. This podcast gives you insights to the strategies our guests use to overcome obstacles and manifest their dreams in business, career, relationships, and in life. Listen to find new levels of energy, perspective, and courage. Your journey to light your life begins now. Hello and welcome to the Light Your Life podcast. I'm Tina Marie St. Cyr, and it's so great to be with you again for our time to sit at the hem of a wise person that is sharing their wisdom, their experience, and their journey with us. So I'm going to be taking notes, and I know you will be too. Let me introduce our friend today. Casey Ariaga is an amazing soul, and he has helped thousands of people through their journeys with addictions and abuse. And his background in therapy and being a wonderful counselor is what he's sharing with us today in his second book. So let me tell you what else you're going to be able to pick up that Casey has produced for us and how you're going to touch his wisdom after this podcast today. So Casey has also produced the book. Realistic Hope, the Family Survival Guide for Facing Alcoholism and Other Addictions, a gem. Even if you don't know that addictions in your family history or something you're dealing with right now, I guarantee there's wisdom that comes out of that will give you aha moments. It did me. And then also the podcast that Casey produces is Addiction in the Family. Today, what we're unpacking is a book. When I read the title, I was like, oh God, Casey, you've got to be on this show again. And it is Spirituality for People Who Hate Spirituality. Wow. Let's unpack that topic. So Casey, thanks for being our guest again on the Light Your Life podcast. Oh, thank you so much for having me back. It is amazing to be here. And thank you for that incredibly warm and sweet uh inspiring and inspires me to be a better version of myself on the podcast today when I get an introduction like that. So thank you for that. Thank you. And so many people may write one book in their lifetime. You've been busy. You've written two now, and this one is really intriguing to me. Well, thank you. I, uh, I'll, okay. So if I may, I'm going to tell you a funny story that almost nobody knows about writing this. this second book. Um, so I have a great support system within recovery and I'm involved in different recovery fellowships and in the activities of one of those fellowships, um, two people will get together with a third person in this case, me and help kind of go over financial things and look at different aspects. 
And so I brought this question to the group with the first book, Realistic Hope, that you mentioned already. And I said, I'm, does this feel like an okay time to publish this? I have the money. It's set aside because I want to hire somebody to do the graphic design and somebody to lay it out and all this kind of stuff. So a little bit of startup cost. Should I do that? And one of the two people on the PRG, and, and I know he meant it really well, but he's like, well, you know, I wrote a book. I didn't make much money on it. And he goes, you know, Casey, a lot of people got a book in them. How many people really have two? Well, that stuck with me. <laughs> and being the kind of person that I am, right? as soon as I finished, I kid you not, the day I finished Realistic Hope, <laughs> yes, I started writing the next book. I just wrote a sentence or two as like a stunt just mm-hmm. to be like, watch this. <laughs> right. But- as these things do, it started to take on a life of its own and started to kind of shape itself. And I started realizing, okay, there is another book to be written, not a stunt, not a watch this, mm-hmm. just like, you know, this book does want to be written and, and I do want to write it. And it became a fascinating journey for me because like so many things, you know, I went in thinking, I know something about this subject. I don't know everything. And I don't, I mean, who knows everything about spirituality, but right. I do know my own journey and what has seemed to be helpful for other people who have struggled spiritually the way I have. Mm-hmm. And I think, man, I've, correct me if I'm wrong, I think I actually heard this quote on your podcast. Somebody said, we're best suited to help the person we used to be. Exactly. We're only so ever thought, two to three steps away from the person that we can help the most. Yeah. Oh, that's beautiful. And so I thought, okay, I'm going to write kind of just like the first book was a book that I wish someone had handed me when I was 15. This is a book I wish somebody had handed me when I first stepped into recovery and went like, Oh, I want nothing to do. I hear the word God. I hear the spirituality. I want nothing to do with that. And yet I need this recovery and the recovery fellowship that I happened to stumble into was based on spirituality. So I thought I want to write this book, but I also wanted to make sure I wasn't just writing it for people in recovery, but actually anybody who might struggle or might, who might know somebody who struggles might say, I'm not sure how to talk to someone about this. Right. I want to know what's the scientific research. You know, what do we actually know? Because I'm kind of that science geeky sort of guy. Mm-hmm. And how can I talk about this in a way that can be helpful for people where you don't need a degree in science to understand what we're talking about? Exactly. So I'm going to say the name of the book again, because I love it. And there's a word in there that when I read the title, I was like, wow, that's pretty strong, even for Casey. Spirituality for people who hate spirituality. Hate's a pretty strong word. It it is. And I won't kid you. I second guessed myself a few times. Like maybe I should just make it spirituality for people who mildly dislike spirituality. But (laughs) (laughs) I will tell you, here's what I found. Uh I would talk to people about it and they would say, oh, you're writing another book. What's it going to be about? And I would, before I would even say, what's it going to be about? I would just tell them the title. Mm-hmm. because I figured if you can't get it from the title, then it doesn't matter what it's about. You know, we like to say we don't book a, uh, judge a book by its cover, but we do. Um, oh, I picked up books because I like the picture on the front. <laughs> so <laughs> I thought, okay, I, I need a title that's going to grab people. And so what I found is that when I said the title out loud to the kind of person I was trying to help, right, they would start laughing. And then the very next thing would be, I need to read that book. And I thought, wow. okay, then that's the title. There you go. And you defined your avatar audience right there. Yeah. (laughs) Which is awesome. So early on in the book, it says that this book is for people who hate the idea of spirituality, but know that ignoring it or pushing it away hasn't gotten them to where they truly want to be in life. Right. 
I'd yeah. love to start with your definition because your definition, it really, it's provocative. It's simple. It's easy. It's bam. Yes. So let's hear Casey's definition of spirituality. Okay. So my definition of spirituality, and I've been using this for a while in, in counseling and working with people and working with other people in recovery is simply a sense of connection to something greater than yourself. Mm. And I wanted to keep it super wide and open like that. Mm-hmm. And so here's this moment where I think like, okay, <laughs> I have my book sitting next to me. I didn't actually flip it open to see, is that exactly how I worded it in the book? It but is. I did start that section saying <laughs> an uncommon definition. Right. And so, yeah, spirituality is a sense of connection to something greater than yourself. And that was important to me, mm-hmm. that it be a very open definition. I didn't deliberately set up to say, hey, I need to have a different definition than everyone else. Because I looked up a few dictionary definitions because I thought maybe this is what everyone thinks. And of course, what I found very quickly is it's, it's not what everybody says. But to me, it was sort of the distillation of what's underneath so many spiritual ideas that there's something greater than myself. Right. It could be the spirit of the universe. It could be nature. It could be someone very near and dear to me in recovery who said, my higher power is the worldwide energy of all the people on earth who are using 12-step recovery right now. Mm-hmm. And I think like, okay, that works great. And that's from somebody who was a dyed-in-the-wool, diehard atheist who still practices 12-step recovery, which is based in spirituality and helps other people. And I thought like, okay, if that works for you, then that just illustrates anything greater than yourself, whatever that phrase means to you, can work exactly. to get you the gifts of spirituality. And it's that sense of what I gathered from it when I started diving into your book. Um, and thank you so much for writing it. Now we're going to unpack some really great wisdom here, is that it's the sense of connection, but connection even greater it's like humanity it's humanity's best self it's like this this part of us that knows that there's something greater but we don't know we don't always look in that direction there unfortunately at least from my experience it seems that when life itself gets hard or when there's something that is coming down upon us or threatening our safety then we reach to something outside of ourselves to give ourselves that strength and that solidity to remind ourselves of what's inside. Have you also found that? I think that's a beautiful way to put it. And uh, what I'm going to advocate for people is develop that sense of connection before you're in trouble so that it's there for you when it happens. Because, you know, a lot of people will talk about foxhole prayers, that sort of like, oh man, I got drunk, I crashed the car, I ended up in jail. And then I say, dear God, with no idea what that word even means to me, please get me out of jail and I will be a good boy from now on. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, at least in the circles in which I hang out, usually what's followed shortly after that is, so then I got out of jail and pretty soon I was drunk and driving again. Mm-hmm. I hear this kind of thing from my clients all the time. Well, I've tried, you know, I, I have prayed, but it's that foxhole, like when I'm in huge trouble. And one of the things that I like to say is the difference between my higher power and the plumber is I only call the plumber when I'm in trouble. I've never once called my plumber to say, you know, everything's working great. Thank you so much. I really appreciate the work you've done. Maybe I should. That's a great way to develop a relationship with your plumber. But the reality is that most of us don't do that. Well, I don't want to treat my higher power like a plumber. I want to treat my higher power like an important facet and part of my life. Even if I'm not sure what that higher power is, just that sense of connection. You talked about that. You know, bringing out our best selves. Well, I think just on a neurological level, and you know, I got to read a lot of 
uh, sort of, let's say, high-level studies around spirituality in the brain and then figured out, how can I put this in terms that would have made sense to me when I had two weeks sober? And so, you know, not dumb it down, but sort of how do I simplify this idea? But I got to read a lot of these things like what is happening in the brain on a neurological level and all these kinds of things. And it it sort of solidified something that I think I've known for a long time. And it's certainly not ori original to me, but just how much it goes down, even just down to our neurons, is that human beings thrive when we feel connected and mm -hmm. we suffer when we don't. And if spirituality is simply that sense of connection, that's available to everybody. That sense that I am okay, I am connected. I think we're just simply a tribal animal. We mm -hmm. need to feel connected, feel okay. It's one of the reasons that we love dogs and dogs love us. Right. And then some people like cats, but they spend all their time trying to like win the affection of their cat. And the, the cat they really love is the one that just comes up and curls on their lap. And they go like, ah, oh, okay, mm -hmm. there you go. That sense of I am connected. And that tells me I'm okay. Yeah. So I think that's so important for people. I love that. That reminds me that recently I've been uh, speaking to people about what is their sense of not, not necessarily the word spirituality, but how do they renew themselves? You know, whenever we get to these places of stress and overwhelm and anxiety or depression, or just not knowing or feeling, you know, out of sorts, um, what do they do to renew themselves, to rejuvenate that sense of self or sense of purpose or energy? And, and I was in this uh, one mastermind with a number of entrepreneurs, business owners, and there's this spread, I guess, of a conversation saying that they're feeling unmotivated and uninspired. And the number one thread of, of connection that they utilize is nature and going to nature. And what I've done in myself in going to nature, it's, it's great to think that I can escape into nature or I can go to nature and then the renewal happens, which I looked inside my own thinking and went, I think that's a bit of an excuse. I'm stalling myself and I'm giving myself a way out or I'm escaping to something and moving away from humanity where I judge humanity to be stressful or any human interaction is, is what's causing the pain and nature's my savior, right? Mm -hmm. And I, I had to stop myself. I had to pump the brakes on my, my thinking there because I went, hold on a second, I'm creating a division uh, and because I'm going to come right back into humanity and then all of a sudden I'm just going to start amping it up and amping it up until I once again need to escape humanity. So I asked myself, how can I find my spirituality? How can I find my rejuvenation in and among the daily moments of my life, as opposed to thinking I must escape them. And I, I read your book and I wanted to get your perception on that, um, you know, way of being in our, in our human culture right now. Yeah, well, it, it's funny what you bring up there really strikes me because you said, you know, I'm creating this division. And I think a lot of us as humans, as a culture, tend to think of ourselves as being separate from nature and saying like, Oh, I want to get out of the city and into nature, but the city is nature. We're full of human beings. And by the way, if you've ever been to a city, it's full of life. You may not like all the rats and the bugs, but they're life. They're there. Plants grow in the cracks in the sidewalk, all this kind of stuff. And, you know, what crossed my mind when you were talking is, you know, if I was going to say downtown Austin or downtown New York or downtown Paris is not nature, then I may as well say an anthill is not nature. Mm -hmm. You know, it's, we're all part of this whether we think of ourselves that way or not. And again, if we thrive on a sense of connection, then when I stop and say, no matter where I am, I am part of nature. I'm part of the living, breathing organism of the earth. Then I can relax into that and say like, okay. But I know that for some people, we need to 
get into, you know, in and among the trees where there's a little more oxygen getting pumped in the air and all that kind of stuff. And it was one of those things that came up in researching the book and I, I put it in there and I'm not even going to try and slaughter the Japanese word for it, but the term was forest bathing. Mm-hmm. Oh, and yes. when I first read this term, mm-hmm. yeah, I saw the benefits of forest bathing or something like that. It's It was a more complicated title of the paper, but I think I was looking for something else. And I thought like, that's interesting enough. I'm just going to go see what it means. Cause I have this vision of sort of, you know, old Japanese baths out in, out in the forest, but they mean forest bathing in the way people mean sunbathing, mm-hmm. like bathing in the energy of. Yeah, and so yeah, what they were yeah. talking about is the, the psychological emotional benefits of just taking a walk in the forest to the point where someone might prescribe that to you. Like you need to do a certain amount of forest bathing each day or each week to rejuvenate because sometimes it is easy to put ourselves in separation to say, I'm going to be inside my house away from the weather. I'm going to drive in my car and everything. The windshield looks like it's on TV, mm-hmm. all those kinds of things. Those create an artificial sense of separation, even though we're deeply and intimately connected all the time, whether we want to be or whether we think of it that way. Mm-hmm. I was laying in my bed the other night. I could not sleep. And uh, oftentimes in those places where I'm struggling to, oh, I've got to sleep because tomorrow morning is a big day. Uh, I'll, I'll look at my own resistance and whatever's going on in my nervous system. And I'll say, well, what is another perspective I can hold at this moment? And for me, those inner questions become my spirituality. It's thinking outside of my normal to mm-hmm. avail itself to something curious. And I, I sat there, I was lay there and I thought, okay, so if I'm awake, I wonder who else in the world is awake at this time. And I just allowed my imagination to have playtime. And I sat there and instead of thinking that we're all crazy awake, the people that are not able to sleep is I instead said, okay, we're to connect right now. And I use my imagination to connect to the people that are in the houses next to me. And I literally realized I'm about 50 feet away from another person in their home that's either sleeping or not sleeping and a hundred feet away from another person here and maybe 70 feet from this person. But then I started realizing this web of energy that's all here. We're just all having our own common experience in the multitude of the community. Uh, and it's a very, it was a very interesting perspective to ask these questions of myself and get out of sight of my normal anxious thinking or trying to prepare for the next day thinking that was keeping me awake. So that led me to a question that I'd written in my notes here. I wanted to ask is what are the bigger questions that Casey asks himself that are spiritual in nature to get to know you in the world and life and nature more? Well, I'll be honest with you at this point, the biggest questions that I ask myself is really, what does my higher power want me to do next? That's the kind of big question. Um, I used to ask a lot of big questions about sort of the nature of my higher power. What, you know, who is it? What is it? Where did it all start? Where's it all going to end? I used to ask a lot of those questions. What I found for reasons that I explored a little bit in the book is I'm never going to answer those questions. Now, it doesn't mean they're bad questions to ask, and it doesn't mean that there aren't some aspects of them that can find an answer, but I found that I'm not going to answer those questions in any way that's going to be effective or satisfying for me. Mm. In fact, I read a great book. The last name of the author is Carse, C-A-R-S-E, and I hate to say I'm spacing out the first name. Mm. He wrote this really great book called The Religious Case Against Belief. Mm. Talk about a great title. Captured mm-hmm. my imagination. Like, what do you mean the religious case against belief? I thought that was the whole point. Well, he talks about the importance of uncertainty, because without uncertainty, there is no faith. 
And when we get into certainty, whether it's around religious ideas, political ideas, whatever, then we start being sure we are right. And then by definition, somebody else is wrong. Right. Correct. And now it's conflict and division. Whereas if we live in faith and the idea of uncertainty, I'm not sure the answer to that. I'm not even looking for certainty around that. In fact, I am going to revel in the divine beauty of the uncertainty. Then I get to live in faith. And now I feel connected to all these other people because I don't need to be right and they're wrong. And it was a really fascinating perspective and written, you know, sort of high level philosophy. And there were times where I had to stop and look up words and, you know, flip back and forth between pages, but it really captured me. And so I think things like that have helped me to step away from sort of the traditional, in my mind, spiritual questions of, you know, where does it all begin? Where does it all end? What happens after we die? Things which I'm never going to have a true and satisfying answer to and step instead into what should I be doing right now? and making it a very practical kind of thing. Um, but something else you said also struck me because, and, and it's beautiful, you know, as a therapist and, um, you know, doing what I do, I think a lot of my clients assume that, you know, they're going to sit down in a session and I'm going to espouse wisdom when in reality, we're going to do some exploration together. And sometimes they're going to bring me something where I'm going to go like, wow, you just blew my mind. And there was one time when a client came to me and said, like, I'm going through all this pain and grief over this terrible thing that happened in my life and what I did with it. And I don't remember where they got it. I think they picked it up from a Buddhist monk or something like that, but was to do this exercise of envisioning themselves holding hands with all the other people on earth who have been through a similar experience. Mm -hmm. And then expanding that to all the people in history who have been through a similar experience and recognizing we have all survived this. And we can all support each other. And just that idea of holding hands or putting our hands on each other's shoulders. And again, that sense of connection, even saying it, I can take a deep breath and just feel yeah. part of my body relax with like, whatever I've been through, it's okay. I'm not mm-hmm. alone in that. And sometimes those traumatic experiences leave us feeling separated, alone. I can't tell people I'm damaged goods, all this kind of stuff, none of which is true. And right. so a lot of the therapeutic process is stepping away from that and back into the sense of it is safe for me to connect. Right. And that is such a beautiful thing. It is a very beautiful thing. And it goes right back to your definition of a sense of connection to a power higher and greater than ourselves, even though, you know, we don't have to think of some deity or something up in the heavens or, you know, more omnipresent than us. And we're touching that very omnipresence within our own soul and and the truth, whenever we imagine that connection and allow ourselves to, to think expansively in that direction, I felt it, uh, just as you shared that story and that's very powerful. So you use this, um, you have a lot of stories in your book about different people that you've counseled and, uh, how you use this sense of spirituality, not necessarily even saying the word but it's a sense of let's look inside, let's look without, let's, let's, let's expand our thinking and see what comes of it. And so um, I was just thinking of, you know, there was a gentleman in your book that is of a different faith, a different religion, mm-hmm. yet the common thread that connected you and he, and he and the others in the same program um, absolve itself as uh, itself of any, there's no um, boxes or boundaries because my spirituality is this, or my religion's this, and my beliefs are this. Uh, so we are able to rise above all of this in pretty much in an instant. Yes. We certainly can. And, and, um, 
one of the stories with the same individual that I didn't put in the book, and I've, I've had the pleasure, uh, as sometimes happens in the recovery world, of working with this man for years. We've never met in person. Oh, um, when I first started talking with him, he, he grew up on the East Coast, but when I first started talking to him, he was in an Islamic country, which is generally considered to be an enemy of the United States, and certainly an enemy of Israel. And yet during the time when I talked to him, where he moved between a couple of different places, one of which is considered more friendly and allied, one of which is considered very unfriendly and unallied, I got to be on recovery calls. And I remember one in particular where he and I were in the same meeting and he was being of service to a woman in Israel. Hmm. And I thought, how many people in Iran are being of service to somebody in Israel and vice versa right now at this moment? Right. You know, probably not a lot, but I got to watch that happen because everybody stepped outside of whatever boxes we would put ourselves in and instead thought in terms of what is a common spiritual solution? Where can we find gratitude? Mm-hmm. You know, where do we connect versus what separates us? And that, well, that's one of the reasons I keep showing up. <laughs> it is. It's who you are in your core. I know that about you. It's awesome. There's a saying we have here at Bonfire through our coaching program. It's that certainty, certainty is the number one human need across all males. <laughs> Those that care about their ability to live, we certainty is in there. It's not going to die, hopefully, because it's keeping us alive, right? So certainty, we say certainty equals safety. That's what we're looking for, safety. Yet safety equals stuck. Because whenever we're only thinking towards safety, what are we also missing in opportunity, connection, the, the beauty of the world? Um, it's a, um, a, a saying by Goethe, uh, a philosopher. He said, there comes a time in a man's life where he must question everything. And what I love about that, you know, one, when I first heard it, I was in my early thirties and it blew my mind. I'm like, Oh God, no, you can't question everything. We've got to have something we can trust the world's going to end if I question everything. And I allowed that part of my mind to relax and breathe. And then I went, no, but what if we could, what if we could question everything, then we get to rebuild it. We get to rebuild it with a new sense of wonder and aliveness and possibly the certainty that we've built our beliefs upon may be restrictive in nature. And if we have that, that curiosity, then we can grow from it. And that's a big sense of what I took from your book is this uh, be curious about yourself and the other, and not so attached to belief systems, which may have played a part in certainty in your past, yet may not play the same level of certainty and safety in your future. Mm, that's really cool. And it's funny when you were saying that, what one of the things that kind of popped in my head was this idea of safety, right? Well, I think the question everything, the the two main maybe modes or times in somebody's life when they might question everything, I would I would think would be the times when they feel the least safe and the times when they feel the most safe. And so I think we might start off, or I would say I certainly started off by questioning everything, including my diehard, there, there is no spirituality for me belief, because that was a diehard belief of mine. There's nothing there for me that can work, and I don't want there to be. I questioned that because of the lack of safety that came through multiple relapses as a result of stepping so far outside of the basic framework of the recovery program that I was using. And it's still used to this day. Um, but now 
I'm able to question everything from a place of safety, knowing I'm going to be okay no matter what the answers are. And now, again, this is me sort of in my highest plane, you know, me in my day to day, I will tell you the truth. I was really scared mm -hmm. about putting this book out. Really? Well, the first one, I felt like, okay, this is something I've been teaching for years, all this kinds mm -hmm. of stuff. The second one, you know, talking about a subject where I'm coming from a place of uncertainty of, of like, I started out as someone with none of this. Mm -hmm. I'm just going to tell you what's worked for me. It's helped a handful of people within my circle that I've had the pleasure to work with as clients or friends. But, you know, to put a book out about it felt more personal mm -hmm. in a lot of ways. And it felt more vulnerable, vulnerable yeah, to, put vulnerable. This, to put this book out which made it all the more really obvious that I needed to put this book out. <laughs> but <laughs> way to summon the courage. <laughs> but but <Yeah. laughs> the anxiety is real. And I think I just put it out a couple of weeks ago. And I think I've spent the last two weeks just going, it's gonna be okay. I have a hundred percent survival rate on surviving every single thing I thought I wasn't gonna survive. So this one's gonna be okay. And so yes. uh, so it's it's been a great spiritual journey just putting the book out. Mm-hmm. It has um, been. It's, been, it's yeah. been really, really wonderful. And again, I'll, I'll tell you something that a couple of friends know, and my wife laughs about. She was there, which is the day that I finished formatting this book, mm -hmm. the next book title popped into my head. And I thought like, okay, so I need to start. I, I didn't know if I was going to, I didn't know that I had two books in me. So I'm going to write a third one. I'm not mm -hmm. going to talk about that one though right now because I want to put the no. spotlight back on this one. It's embryonic. We don't talk but about it. It's, it's very, it's very embryonic right now. <laughs> yes, but it's it's there, and it gave me the idea that I'm probably going to keep writing books, which actually makes me very happy. I found that I is. That. I can't wait. I can't I wait. Yeah. And so you say in the book that cynicism, or I said cynicism. I didn't mean that word. Maybe somewhere I did, but skepticism yes. is healthy. So we're going to engage the minds right now, the minds, hearts, and souls of the skeptics going, okay, hold on a second. You've got me up till now, but seriously, spirituality, I'm still a little skeptic on it, you know, like, and, and we're going to pull you in because there just the other day I was listening to someone speak about spirituality and I'm going to, you know, they probably won't know who they are. <laughs> It was like, it was like a woo-universe thing, like a woo-universe, like uh, literally like crystals and mantras and you have to paint a wall a certain color because of certain energies and then this will happen because of that and if you put this plant in that corner then this will happen and and I was just observing I was like okay I'm observing it and in my mind I'm going wow they really believe this stuff so <laughs> but I was skeptic I was skeptic skeptical right and I'm thinking you know I might test that for myself and play with it and then there's another wise part of myself that says, you know, belief is belief and that thought is thought. And depending on how you form thought, then thought itself can manifest in your life the way that you energize it. And so I was seeing the energy effects of the thought for this particular human being work for her. And I was thinking, I get the chance to uh, experiment with my own belief system and thought stream and need not permission to do so. So I love that you say that skepticism is healthy. And so let's dive into that. Okay. <laughs> well, it's funny, you know, um, you know, I would have done this anyway, but especially again, in writing this book that felt more personal and a little more vulnerable, I bounced it off a number of people and I wanted to get some people in recovery because I knew that that's sort of a core audience that I have and mm -hmm. that I wanted this book to reach, but not exclusively, but 
So I bounced it off some people who are, you know, have a spirituality that works very well for them that are not in recovery, not connected to addiction at all, that sort of thing. Um, and some very scientifically minded people. And so some of the feedback that I got back that I really valued was uh, actually the section that you're referring to in the book is titled spiritual skepticism. Mm-hmm. And originally it was just skepticism. <laughs> and they're like, hold on a second, you're making skepticism sound like a bad word. And I'm like, well, I don't mean it like that exactly. And I thought, okay, let me clarify what I mean, spiritual skepticism. But even then, skepticism, I think, is good. It is healthy. It's the basis of all scientific thought. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we are where we are as a civilization because people said, well, hold on a second. I know you're saying this, but let me look and see, is that really true? Mm-hmm. But it's a balance. And for me, it really is about a balance of, can I balance skepticism, the idea of sort of question everything, or as we talk about Cartesian skepticism, a term that I learned in writing this book, which is I'm going to question everything in a particular sort of Venn diagram set. So maybe I question all things that come from religion, but not all things that come from scientific papers. Or maybe I question all things that come from one news channel, but you know, believe everything wholesale from another news channel, that sort of thing. Or I believe all the things one person says and none of the things another person says, or one group of people says, et cetera. You get the idea. Yeah. So that sort of Cartesian skepticism. And so I think the overall idea of skepticism is healthy to be able to say, okay, is this really true? I mean, a lot of my personal growth has been built on an internal skepticism of saying, okay, I've been telling myself that I'm not good enough. Can I be skeptical about that belief and hold it up to light and say, is that really true? Do Is this belief still serving me? Is this still functional? And, uh, you know, one of the recovery fellowships, Smart Recovery, talks about this kind of thing a lot. Mm-hmm. You know, am I carrying an irrational belief? And one of the things that I discovered in Smart Recovery is that by irrational, they don't just mean illogical, but they mean, is it no longer serving me? Mm-hmm. And so... In a way, when I'm talking about spiritual skepticism, I can be skeptical about spiritual ideas, which again, can be healthy and help me parse out which ones are working for me, which ones are not. But I can also be skeptical about my skepticism and say, Mm -hmm. okay, do I need to question everything about something that's working really well for me? Mm -hmm. And that crossing that threshold to be able to say, it is okay. And again, maybe I can feel safe enough to say, I'm going to allow myself to go with a belief that works for me, even though I can't prove it logically, I cannot prove that it is 100% true. Otherwise, again, there is no faith involved. And um, one of the frameworks that I, I think I mentioned it in the book is the idea that sometimes an unhealthy level of skepticism can be found mm-hmm. when we're living, really, I'm going to say, in too much fear. Right. And so the fear, yeah, the fear says I need to question it so that I never make any choice that's wrong. But if we never make any choices that are wrong, then we never learn anything. Right. And that goes back to what you're saying with bonfire coaching, you know, I'll stay safe, but I'll stay stuck. Yeah. And how do we know what we're missing? So something I I ask myself is, and and this has been a big season of my life over this year. It's been a, a wonderful and yet chaotic and sometimes painful filter is what is possible for me. And if I were not living the life that I'm living right now, what would I be living? So it opens up the possibilities of other avenues to get to a result other than the straight line path that my mind would like to put out in front of me. 
is I want to break down the, I personally want to break down those barriers of conditional mind thinking that I have to do this to get here else that will happen. And for my, for me, that looks like just absolve all the conditions that I think are normal or supposed to, or have to, or should, and see what then enlightens itself through my mind. And I've been able to make amazing, um, headway in things with leaps and bounds progress, breaking my own rules of thinking because it's shattering those. But more than that, it's giving me shaky knees. I'm like, Oh God, I couldn't possibly. And if I get the, I couldn't possibly, I got to go for it. That's like, um, who is it? Um, Oh, why can I not think of her name right now? Uh, beautiful, um, wife to president. <laughs> wow. That's interesting. Mind. Um, but, do that. Current yeah, they do that. President? huh no current president former president um past president she's awesome and i i'll remember her name um she said that if if you can't you must mm, nice. yes if you can't you must right and i'm like oh yeah if my mind says i can't then i i must go for that so um that's shattering those safety mechanisms um that are keeping us stuck and so another uh, question, you, you said something and I'm like, oh, I'm curious about this for Casey. Um, you said that you're measuring things if it works well for me, if this is working well for me. What do you use to measure the working well for you in your life right now? Uh, like at this moment, or are you saying kind of what's the technique? Um, you know, what's that guidance system for Casey to say, okay, well, this belief system, this pursuit, these, these needs that I'm getting mad, this works well for me. Is it happiness, joy? Is it peace? Is it, you know, what are those measurements that you're using inside of your own environment to say, this is working well for me? Okay. Yeah. What are the metrics? So I'm going to say Eleanor maybe, Roosevelt. That was her name. There you go. <laughs> I was going to be one of my guesses. I'm like, is she bigger than a bread box? Okay. So <laughs> Uh, <laughs> got it uh, okay <laughs> okay what are those metrics <laughs> um i'm gonna say at this point in my life probably the biggest one is peace and serenity and it's one of the things that i've come to really see you know again as somebody in addiction recovery and i've been blessed to be in recovery for 24 years now and that's not 24 years continuously sober but 24 years in recovery mm-hmm. and over the course of that time it's probably within the last three years or so that I recognized that peace had always been my goal. I just thought peace would come through a substance, a person, a relationship, an amount of money, an amount of fame, success, whatever. I always had that idea. If I get blank, right, then I will finally be okay. And by okay, I meant I, it's like I can relax and be at peace. Mm-hmm. Needless to say, none of that ever worked. And I've had you know, even when I got whatever it is, factor X that I thought was going to do the deal, I'd be excited for a little bit, which by the way, excitement is not peace, (laughs) but I would never find that sense of peace and contentment that could last Mm -hmm. because I have that thing in my brain that says, but I need more. And I know that's not exclusive to me, but it's, it's certainly in me. Mm -hmm. So I look a lot for that sense of peace, that sense Mm -hmm. of like, do I just feel content? Do I feel okay? Mm -hmm. And I don't expect, nor do I experience feeling that all the time by any stretch, but it certainly does come up. And I have enough time in my life where I can say like, I am feeling more peaceful now, not only more peaceful than I used to feel, but more peaceful than I imagined I could ever feel. Hmm. 
And so anything that guides me towards that. Now, I want to clarify, because even when I'm saying that, I could say like, well, I'm going to pick some spiritual belief that works for me and ah, screw everybody else. But I find that that mode of thinking does not bring me peace. Right. Like, I don't feel good if I'm trampling over someone else to get what I want. I, and I used to think that's how, like, peep, that's how the whole world operated. And that's what I had to learn how to do. Mm, that's but funny. I yeah, I was <laughs> for me and people around me. And I'm sorry mm. to all of them. But the mm. reality is, is that I've found that I feel more peace when I'm helping other people. I feel more peace when it's a win-win. I feel more peace when I'm okay and other people are okay and people are happy to see me walk in a room rather than threatened and people feel better when I leave rather than worse. Mm. So finding what works for me has never been an exercise in selfishness. It's really turned out to be the opposite to find out like, where can I find a life where there is service involved, where I feel good about what I'm putting into the world um, rather than trying to selfishly grab as much as I can just to temporarily soothe the pain. Right. And having tried both modes of, of living, I can tell you that, that the peaceful one works much better. So that's my number one metric of what's working for me. Thank you so much for sharing that. That was so enlightening. And you speak of uh, empathy. It's having this sense of empathy with other people as a natural, authentic you know, not like we're purposefully going out and um, trying to instill it in ourselves or reach for it or prove it or, you know, get significance toward, I'm, I'm being empathetic. It's like, it's like a, a natural exhale from your soul that's saying, this is who I, I naturally am. That, that felt peaceful for me just to hear you say that. I think it's what naturally happens when we feel safe. Mm. When we feel safe, I think people just naturally connect and we feel threatened, mm -hmm. we pull away. And so I can kind of get an idea, you talk about a metric, I can get a barometer of how I'm feeling at any given moment based on whether I am moving towards or pushing away. Mm. And that's safety. So do you find that safety and spirituality are intertwined? Uh, for me, they very much are, my sense of safety. Because mm -hmm. uh, when I am living in my spirituality. And again, I want to be clear, this is not like I'm not like floating in the clouds 24 seven or anything like that. <laughs> right. But when I'm living more spiritually, I'll say rather than less, then I do feel safe. I have a sense that I'm going to be okay, no matter what, even if it's uncomfortable. And I, and I mean, highly uncomfortable. I've, I've had somebody ask me recently, and I think this is before the book came out. I'll probably hear more of it now. The book's out like, well, are you afraid of death? Uh, and uh -huh. somebody asked me that and they asked it as a straightforward question. I think it was a client of mine at a treatment center said, you know, well, do you fear death? And I said, if you push me towards a cliff, I'm sure I'm going to scream and fight. You know, that's right. just instinct. I'm going to do that. But sitting here right now, do I fear it? I feel like I don't. I feel like, well, either there's something after this and I'm going to find out or there's mm -hmm. not, and there will be no me to worry about it. And my atoms will just rejoin the dance of the proteins as Margaret Atwood said, <laughs> right. and <laughs> they'll move on into other things as, you know, my body's made up of atoms that used to be somewhere else doing something else. Mm -hmm. um, but if there's something else, and if there isn't a spiritual afterlife, then I guess I'll find out about that when the time comes as yet, no one's mm -hmm. come back to tell me with any definitive certainty. So I'm just going to leave that an open question. Mm -hmm. But I say this, it's, I, I do have a dark sense of humor. So my <laughs> thing I say is like, even if I die in a 
flaming car wreck. I mean, it'll be painful and I'll scream and I'll thrash, but it's going to be over in a minute. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, so whatever it is, it's going to be okay. Yeah. There was a, um, a teacher in my life that told me that the, the fear of death or that whenever we're in that place that we would fear death or have uh, anxiety toward the possibility of dying that it highlights or, or sheds light on that there are unresolved things in our life that we have not yet seen or taken mm-hmm. account of or worked through or toward, or like there's a sense of courage and communications that are needing to come from the soul and the heart. And once you've um, dealt with those things, when you, you find this peace that you're speaking of, Casey, whenever each moment can have its own peace, then even death is an open door. Yeah. And I, I think about deathbed interviews and people I know that work in hospice and I have a very dear friend of mine who works in hospice, but I've talked with, you know, nurses that I've worked with that used to work in hospice and all this kind of mm-hmm. stuff and very much common themes, you know, with the idea of like sort of the beauty and peace of that work as people near the end of their lives. And sometimes there is regret, of course, and sometimes there's family conflict mm-hmm. and all that kind of stuff. But, you know, the common themes that I hear is nobody gets to the end and says, I wish I'd spent more time at work. I wish I'd made more money. What we hear is, I wish I'd been more loving. I wish I had gotten to know this person. I wish I'd been more authentically myself. You know, those things. And so I think of Eric Erickson's stages and he was one of the- I love Eric few, Erickson. Yeah, I know, great stuff, right? And he's one of the- Amazing stuff. Everyone else would say like, here are the stages between, you know, zero and 12 years old. And then they would just drop us off a cliff. Um, <laughs> and Erickson went all the way to the end. And each one, each stage is framed as- a question or really sort of a dilemma, like which direction am I going to go in? And the last one is integrity versus despair. Mm. Integrity, was I myself? Did I show up as myself or do I live in despair at not having pulled it off? Now, I don't know that that really is like going to be an either or question for me mm-hmm. um, where I get to say, oh, perfectly one way or oh no, perfectly the other way, but more likely to just say like, how well did I do? And I think fear of death for me is not about, you know, what happens next or anything like that. But I think the only one that would come up like right now would be, oh, I didn't finish that last book. Or maybe there's, you know, I was, I was in the middle of the therapeutic process with this one person and we don't get to finish, you know, and, and I can totally go into my ego and go like, oh, they won't be okay. But the reality is they have their own journey and they'll, they'll be just fine without it. And the world will live without any of my books. But I do have a sense of like, okay, I do want to put these things out there while I can. And, and I have a sense of even not just mortality, but human frailty. I mean, I'm, I'm at a stage in my life where I feel like I'm on top of my game. I'm, I'm, I'm at my prime. If I'm ever going to do this, it's now. Yeah. Because at some point, I won't be able to write books anymore. Fair enough. And so this is, this is my time. So I encourage of- anybody. Yes. Cultivate <laughs> <Yeah>. your prime. <laughs> Definitely. So speaking of which, uh, what are some of the bigger takeaways that you want to make sure that, you know, that we, cause I'm listening with everyone here, um, gather from your writing in this book, um, you know, spirituality for people who hate spirituality. Um, so what are some takeaways that you want to make sure that people know, or, you know, wisdom pieces inside of the book? Oh boy. I'm going to say probably the biggest one is that it's possible for anybody. Anybody can get the benefits of spirituality. And that's why early in the book, I spent some time kind of laying out like, here are the benefits. This mm-hmm. is why you might want to have some spirituality in your life. Not so I can get you to believe anything that I believe, because I don't need you to believe that, but so that you can feel better. And 
you know, I guess if there's an overarching message in my life right now, it's that you can feel better, especially if you're feeling worse. You can feel better. It's within your reach. Um, very few of us do it on our own. And I admire anybody who does, but, and I tried that myself for about 10 years and I found I did make improvement, but it was lonely. And I didn't get as far as I did when I turned to others for help. So that'd be the second thing is allow yourself a greater sense of connection. Because again, that's what I see as the basis of spirituality. But even if you don't call it the S word, <laughs> just cultivating that sense of connection can allow you to feel like you're okay. And that sense that you're okay is something I think everyone deserves to experience and within everyone's reach to experience. So this is where that kind of stuff ties together is you can have that sense of spirituality, which can lead to that sense of peace. It's within your reach. And there are, in fact, some practical tools that you can pick up that can help. And that's, you know, the final chapter of the book is, you mm -hmm. know, of course, a whole bunch of like, here's some things you can try. And they're not the only things you can try. These are just the ones that I've seen most helpful for the people that I've seen struggle with this issue. But if you find it somewhere totally different, I feel just as good about it. Mm -hmm. So finding what works for you um, because it's there for you. That's beautiful. And so I want you to also follow Casey on his podcast. Uh, so many wonderful gems there. And he also brings guests on and uh, you get to hear from other people's perspectives, which we all get to learn from like we did today. It's addiction in the family. And then Casey, not only this book that we've spoken about today, spirituality for people who hate spirituality, you also can pick up realistic hope the family survival guide for facing alcoholism and other addictions. Casey, thanks you so much for being, yes, you had one more. Sorry, thing. just one, one quick thing. Is <laughs> I, I do it all the time. When I say addiction and the family, uh, I say it so fast. It sounds like addiction in the family. I don't know if that podcast is out there, but I do addiction and the family and it's and one of the, the little hearts on the logo. Yes. And the family. Yes. Uh, Cause addiction is a family disease as we know. And uh, there's so many growth points we all are experiencing through addiction. And even in my work that I do here through Bonfire, um, many people through the intake realize that they've been in patterns of addiction, even if they're not active in their addiction, their patterns can come up and the triggers are very familial and um, resonate into these patterns that, that they picked up through uh, environment and through family upbringing and stimulus in that way. They replay themselves at different seasons of their life. And so just having that curiosity and different ways to view themselves and the other is very healthy in your book and your podcast. Give us those perspectives so we can try those things on. It's not just theoretical, which I love. You're like, here, speak in this way. Maybe if you did this, and, and, and it gives us things that we can apply and see the benefit of in the moment which is so great <laughs> thank you so much and i want to take a moment to just thank you not just for having me on as a guest a couple times mm -hmm. now but thank you for the work that you do and at the very top here when you gave me this introduction i was just like wow what a beautiful introduction the thought that crossed my mind is that's probably part of what makes you such a great coach because you see the best in people and inspired in them and i just want to thank you for doing that in the world Thank you. It takes an army. It takes all of us, right? There, there's plenty of woes in our world that need love. So we do it together. Thank you so much, Casey. And everybody, you know, go find Casey and Casey Ariaga. Let's spell that last name because it's, is it Italian? It's actually Basque. If it was Italian, we'd pronounce the L's. It's Basque, but it's pronounced in the <laughs> Spanish style. So it's A-R-R-I-L-L-A-G-A. -R -R 
Uh, Basque. Wow, that's a pretty ancient word. <laughs> it, it is. My daughter's an amateur linguist, so she was the first person in all the generations in my family who actually found out what it meant. Oh, wow. Does, so yeah, my, my grandparents mean? would be like, nobody knows what it means, and no one can figure out Basque. And my, my daughter's an amateur linguist, and she I was the it. one who uh, who put it together. So what does Ariaga mean? It means a stony or rocky place, which probably means at some point, ancestrally, my family lived in such a place would be my best guess. <laughs> yes, I think we all probably did <laughs> at some point. <laughs> stony, rocky place. <laughs> yeah. And so if you find yourself in a stony, rocky place, I want you to go reach out for Casey. <laughs> Casey helps you through your stony rocky places it's awesome thank you so much sir have a beautiful day and until next time you are a blessing thank you Mm, thank you you too that was so energizing I have takeaways that will help my life and I'm sure you do too to get show notes bonuses gifts for you from our guests and more head over to lightyourlifepodcast.com and be sure to bookmark this podcast as one of your favorites. I am Tina Marie St. Cyr, founder of Bonfire Coaching and creator of the Bonfire Method. Thank you so much for being connected. Now my homework for you, summon the courage to light your life a little more and go make progress on your dreams today. The Light Your Life podcast is brought to you by Bonfire Coaching. Bonfire Coaching is a system of tools, methodologies, and strategies that help each individual rise above the mundane life that feels efforting, where our mind will get stuck, have confusion, frustration, anger, fear, depression, anxiety, loneliness, and pain. And when we have that calling inside of ourselves for more in our life, where do we turn? We need professional sounding boards that are highly skilled in moving us out of our own way and helping us with strategies to overcome procrastination, hesitance, and that mind that'll hold us back. Bonfire Coaching has helped thousands of people across the globe find lives of fulfillment, success, movement, progress, love, joy, happiness, wonder, and aliveness. And we would love to talk to you. There's always available the complimentary consultation where you can sit with one of our coaches and we will help you dive into the strategies and the tools that we help so many people with. And you can see for yourself how powerful these tools are for you to transform your life. Simply go to bonfirecoaching.com and sign up today. We can't wait to meet you.